Hi, I'm Erica Senior. I'm Jordan Sorokin. I'm Forrest Coleman. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and Stanford Radio, KZSU 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their work and share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Tony Ricci, a professor in the departments of otolaryngology and molecular and cellular physiology here at Stanford. Thank you for joining us today, Tony. Thanks for having me. So, Tony, we we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. It seems extremely complicated. So can you walk us through it step by step? How do you make it? So uh, first I take one or two pieces, maybe three pieces of ice, put it in my glass. I open a bottle of whiskey (laughs) like that, and I put as much in the glass that to cover the ice. And fortunately, <laughs> ice floats, so it's never quite covered. <laughs> there we go. Kill that one. That's it. <laughs> well done. I, I do swish it around a little. Yeah. So do you remember the first time you ever had whiskey? The first time I tasted whiskey, I was about 10 with my grandfather, who was from Ireland. Uh, and it was Irish whiskey that he brought with him. And it was kind of love at first taste. Really, at 10? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. And uh, it was really smooth. Uh, and so I've, since then, I've always... I'm a little bit different because some people tend to like bourbon or scotch. Don't, they don't tend to always like both. For me, it's pretty much... I like I like both. I like them dark. So. Do you have a favorite? For scotch, I like it really peaty, so Lafroegue or Lagavulin, the two. It's like... Having a mouthful of dirt. When <laughs> Sounds delicious. For bourbon, I tend to like more the traditional. I like Maker's Mark. I like Jack Daniels. So, Tony, your lab studies hearing. How did you first get interested in hearing? So this is a little bit of an embarrassing story, to be honest. <laughs> oh, good. So I was working in a lab, a neurochemistry lab in Ohio, when I decided to apply to graduate schools. And I selected graduate schools based on weather. So I wanted to go someplace <laughs> where the weather was better than Cleveland, Ohio. Low bar. Exactly. There are a few places where that's, you know, you just need sunlight. You, kind of, good. you could have just picked up a map and put your finger yeah, somewhere. That's right. So I applied it, applied mostly kind of coastal areas. One of these was uh, New Orleans. I'd been to New Orleans once. I absolutely love New Orleans. And uh, so after sending out the applications and getting, you know, figuring out where, when I got interviews, I started looking at, people. And I picked a person. There was this guy who was at Tulane who was doing sharp electrode paired recordings, which was really cool and kind of pretty far ahead. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to, that's where I want to be. That's what I'm going to do. So I accepted to Tulane. I even interviewed at Tulane. He wasn't there when I interviewed. We moved to, to New Orleans. I had been married for like four weeks at this point. Get there. I find out that he had left three months ago. <laughs> three months before, he had moved to uh, Utah. So I could not tell my wife this, obviously, because she would kill me. It was the first time she had been away from Ohio. Uh, I, was, I figured, I told her the only way I could ensure that our marriage would work was to make sure there was no one she could talk to but me. <laughs> so, and it's worked so far. So I started really, rotations mattered a lot at this point because I had no idea what I was going to do. So when you rotate, you spend about two or three months uh, in different labs trying to identify either a technique or a question or something that you're interested in 
and that's the lab you're going to choose to um, focus the work that you're going to do for your dissertation. Like a kind of weird science first date. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, and so I went into this lab. So the first rotation was an absolute nightmare. It was a psychophysics lab. And I am not opposed to psychophysics, but... It wasn't for you. It was not for me. So then I went and I did this rotation in a lab who's with a guy named Paul Guth, who's uh, he's really a pharmacologist. And he had this really cool prep, which was an isolated uh, prep from Frog, where you could record postsynaptically, uh, and this prep would live for hours, literally like 10 hours. You could do the prep in the morning. You could show up every 20 minutes. You could throw a drug on it. Something would happen. You come back. You wash it off. You do something else with it. It was nice. So that was interesting. I liked that, and I was thinking, oh, well, I could do sharp electrodes and other things with it. And he worked with this other guy who was an engineer. Um, and so I talked with him, and he was like, I'm not taking grad students. Grad students are a pain. Too much work. I'm too old for it. Don't want to deal with it. True, true. And I was like, oh, okay. He was like, well, I was like, well, how about you just show me the kind of stuff that you're doing? I was like, you don't have to, I don't have to come work with you. I was like, I could work with Paul and just do this, do this stuff. So he's like, well, okay, so you can come in. So I went in, and uh, he had an isolated pr- preparation So where you took out a semicircular canal. It was very cool. You could... You would tie this onto two glass rods, so it's around. It's a, it looks like a tube, and the sensory cells are in the middle. Uh, and you could put this piezo device, which means it when you put a voltage on, it moves. Mm-hmm. And so you could use that to actually mechanically stimulate while you were recording from the nerve. So now you had a mecha- way of mechanically stimulating. As if you're creating like a sound pressure? Exactly. As if you're, well, in this case, yeah, sound pressure, or this was vestibular, so it's like if you're turning your head. And he also had just started isolating hair cells. So he had this isolated hair cell prep um, that he was thinking they were going to try to do single cell recordings. So this was 88. So patch clamping was just a couple years old. Um, they hadn't really had it worked out. My interest was really looking at calcium regulation of, of synaptic transmission. Uh, and the big question, it's still a question, right, is finding a good model for a presynaptic cell. And so I looked at this, and I was like, man, this is the perfect presynaptic cell. This is what I want to do. Um, As a first-year graduate student, you thought this? Yeah. <laughs> the rotation wasn't going that well because he was – so his name is Chuck Norris, actually. <laughs> so, and uh, so he came into research late in life. He was uh, a sergeant in the Navy as an electrical engineer, and he retired out of the Navy, used the GI Bill to go back to school and stuff. And he had a very – if you can think of what a sergeant in any of the services would be like, this was, this was who he was. Exemplar. Yes. And he was also from the Bronx, which is where I grew up. So, <laughs> so we did have some kinship that way. But it was always very strong conversations. Did that work for you? I, I love it. Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> okay. And uh, so what happened was he showed me how to do this prep. And I said, well, I'll, I'll come back on Thursday and try one of these preps. So that's what. So I went in on the Thursday, and I didn't go and talk with the guy. I just went because I I went in and just to the room and found a frog and set the whole thing up. And it took like six or seven. It was the first time I was trying. It took me like six or seven hours, sitting there trying to get everything going. I had it where I thought it was working. So I go walking down to find him, and he's he's and now it's like four thirty or so in the afternoon, and he just 
tore me a new one at that point. Like, this this is when you show up. You say you're coming in on Thursday to do an experiment. I was waiting for you, and you didn't show up. And, you know, now you think we're going to do something. And this is why I don't like grad students. And just like <laughs> I, most of the things he said, I can't repeat. And I was like, well, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I was like, I've been here all day. I didn't t- say I was going to come and talk to you. I said I was going to come and try to do an experiment. I have an experiment. Why don't you just come back and tell me whether it worked or not? And he was just like silent. He's like, you, you set one up. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's what I said I was going to do. So he just like harum past me, goes back. And you could see all over him was written, how many pieces of equipment did I break in this <laughs> yeah, exactly. short period of time? Right? And, uh, but he went back and I had actually set, set one up and it was working and whatnot. And so that was actually like the turning point. He actually started speaking to me more civilly at that point. So I was like, well, okay, maybe you can do something. You passed your interview. And so, yeah, that's yeah. right. So we ended up working with him because I got to – and I developed the patch clamp system there. So I got single cell stuff and I got the whole prep going. The actual question I wanted to answer, I didn't answer there, which was doing pre- and post-synaptic recordings. And that actually only – has started working about five years ago. <laughs> so it was a little bit higher bar than uh, than I realized going in, but we did get there eventually. So are you now working on that as well in your lab, or are you shifting your focus somewhere else? So the lab has th- three areas. One is uh, mechanotransduction, one is synaptic transmission, uh, and one is more translational where we're doing drug development. And the synaptic side now we can do paired recordings uh, so you can record from a, neuro, a neuron and the and the hair cell and measure pre and post. So it's very cool because it can be very quantitative. I mean, that's what I like about sensory. That's why I stayed in sensory systems was I realized in doing this that there are more synapses on one pyramidal cell than there are in the cochlea, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I'm not that bright a guy, so I need fewer synapses, things that I can study very one-on-one, input-output. Uh, and that's what the sensory systems gives you. It gives you a clean chance to do very quantitative work, and that's that's what I like. So yes, so we do that at, uh, in turtle and in rat and mm-hmm. mice. So Tony, your lab study is hearing, which of all the sensory modalities is probably the one that the average person, myself included, uh, knows at least about. So can you give us an overview of the anatomy of the inner ear and what we know about how the ear transcribes and transmits auditory information to the brain? Sure. So sound is uh, a set of complex airborne vibrations that come across frequencies. And what happens is the sound goes into the middle ear and hits the tympanic membrane, so it causes a vibration. This then vibrates the three smallest bones in the body, the malleus, incus, and stapes, uh, converting the airborne vibration into a mechanical displacement. The sensory organ of the inner ear is called the cochlea. It gets its name from having a snail-like shape. It's coiled. At the base, there are two uh, holes that have membranes on them. One is called a round window, one is called the oval window. The stapes pushes on one of these windows, and so it generates a pressure wave that travels all the way through the cochlea. So why does the ear do this? Uh, you, you described it. There was a pressure wave that came into the ear, and then it transmitted into a bone moving, and then back to a pressure wave right. again. So why does the ear do it like that? So cells are in fluid by nature, and sound is in air. And so you have what's called an impedance-matching problem, which is that 
uh, if you send airborne vibrations against the liquid, they mostly reflect. So more than 90% of them will reflect. Very little will go into the fluid. Uh, and so you lose all of the signal. So the middle ear is actually somewhat of an engineering feat because you actually lose less than 1% of the energy that comes in and hits the tympanic membrane is lost in the translation to the fluid pressure. So that's the, that's the main role of the middle ear. So how does it do that? So it's both the mass and the, the ability of the, the middle ear bones to move with very little friction on them and, uh, and the robustness of the eardrum, of the tympanic membrane. So it's a very sensitive eardrum. How the eardrum actually works to do this isn't actually all that well known. There's actually some other investigators here at Stanford that could answer these questions better. <laughs> Sunil Piri is in mechanical engineering. They've been studying the tympanic membrane because they actually think part of the tympanic membrane is also tuned, so you get some frequency selectivity through the tympanic membrane. So what happens in the cochlea is you get this pressure wave, and it's called the, the traveling wave that moves through the, the cochlea. And the cochlea is, is organized tonotopically. So you have high-frequency signals at the base and low-frequency signals at the apex. And so the first thing that happens is these complex sound waves get broken down into their frequency component, into a frequency map. And the information that gets transferred to the brain is basically the frequency, the amplitude, and the timing difference between when those frequencies started. And from that, the brain can basically reconstruct all of the information you need for speech, for it's really first used for sound localization in space, things like that. And that's all very precise timing information. Uh, within the cochlea, to, to do this, there's kind of a passive tuning, of, which is based on the, the size and mass of the, of the cells and the basilar membrane, uh, which is what the sensory cells sit on. So like little cells vibrate <clears throat> quickly and bigger so, cells vibrate less right, quickly? Right. So, so the base is narrow and tight. And so it's going to go at high frequencies. And as you go to the apex, it gets broader and more floppy. Like a big string on your guitar versus a, a exactly. tight string on your guitar. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I always think of it as, as, a, as a keyboard, actually. So von Bekesey won the Nobel Prize, I think, in like 68 for uh, demonstrating this traveling wave and this passive tonotopic map. Uh, the big problem that he worked on dead uh, human cadavers and the tuning curves that he measured never matched the, the sensitivity or selectivity that uh, human perception actually has. Can you just explain in a little more detail what you mean by tuning curve? Uh, so you can pick what your output is. Let's say you're measuring from a nerve, single unit activity. So what you do is you say, okay, you set a, an output. So you say it's 50 spikes per second. And then you vary frequency and amplitude until you get 50 spikes per second, right? And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a sweet spot where there's a frequency that takes very little amplitude, very little intensity to give you that 50 spikes per second. So it's going to be kind of a V-shape mm -hmm. when you think about it, if you're plotting intensity against frequency. So it's kind of, in, to use your piano analogy, it's like if you went along and hit each key on the piano and tried to make it, you wanted to make it a certain amount of loudness. And, right. and so you keep hitting each key and see how hard you have to hit it. Right. So this one fiber is going to one hair cell, and it's at one particular position. 
So it's going to respond best to a, one particular frequency. Uh, right, 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 right. And so that's how you can identify that frequency. And so how information gets transferred. So you hear between probably 20 hertz, 20 cycles per second, and about 20,000 cycles per second, right? So nerves can't fire at 20,000 spikes per second. So what you have, or what we think you have, is called a place code. So it's where along this map the nerve is innervating. It projects to a very specific position in the cochlear nucleus that says this is 10 kilohertz, right? So it's not going to fire at 10 kilohertz, but because it goes, it means you're hearing that high-frequency sound. And then perceptually, it actually, you think you're hearing this higher pitch. So is that the most accepted hypothesis or theory in the field? At this moment, that this is moment. right. I personally think this is something worth revisiting, to exactly, how well that holds, holds true. Why is that? Uh, and it comes from mechanical measurements. Mm. So one thing to think about is there's about 3,000 inner hair cells, right? So that's the inner hair cells that send the signal to the brain. They each have about 15 synapses, so it's 45,000 synapses that are transmitting all of the information about frequency and intensity that you're going to get. You, like I said, you can hear from about 20 hertz to about 20,000 hertz, and it's about a 0.6% difference between <laughs> frequencies. So it's very fine resolution of frequency. So, so you can detect better than a sharp key in a, on a piano. <laughs> there aren't enough cells to have a tuning curve for the sensitivity that you can hear at. So there has to be something on top of this. And then in addition to this, if you have 15 synapses on one cell, if that one cell is giving information only on this one frequency, then you can say, okay, well, that's giving intensity information about that. And this is also, so this is the second part of this basic theory, which is, so what the ear is also really good at is you can hear a pin drop and you can hear a jet engine, right? So that's six or seven orders of magnitude of intensity without causing any damage, right? On, at the synaptic side, the way this is thought to happen is that you have fibers that have, the fibers all have very narrow dynamic ranges, but they vary. So you have some that are instant low threshold, and you have some that are very high threshold. And the idea is, well, this is how you, you generate the map. So it takes five fibers to, cr to cover the six orders of magnitude that you can hear, each one covering one of So those. sorry, you were talking about, you had cells before, and the cell responded very specifically to one frequency, and now you're talking about fibers. The fibers is the postsynaptic nerve. So the hair cell is the presynaptic cell. It has about 15 synapses. Each synapse has one fiber. Gotcha. So, which is one of the cool things about studying synaptic transmission there, because it's one fiber, one synapse. So you can be very quantitative. So each of those fibers has a different dynamic range. Mm -hmm. And so the thought is that this is how you get the broad dynamic range from one cell. So one of those synapses will respond when things are very quiet at that frequency, and the other That's one right. won't respond you, until things are very loud. Exactly. You would recruit fibers as you got louder. And then the, the low-threshold ones would, be, would saturate, while, and then you would be recruiting more fibers in. One of the basic problems with the, this idea is that if you look at the mechanical response in the cochlea, the frequency place map is thought to shift with intensity. So if you 
listening to 5 kilohertz, you may stimulate cell A at, at 10 dB intensity. But if you go to 50 dB intensity, that's decibels. That's just a way of standardizing intensity. So let's just say a low stimulus will excite cell A. If you go five times now that intensity, the question is, will it still be that same cell? Or will mm-hmm. it be a different cell? Mechanics would suggest it's likely a different cell that's responding, which means it has to be a different fiber. So if that's the case, then this simple idea of a place code and the simple idea of how to get dynamic range doesn't really hold up. It would be mm-hmm. like in the retina if something got brighter, that like, mm-hmm. the image shifted mm-hmm. over as, as things got brighter, which is sort right. of confusing to think about. So with the ear, it's it's interesting because most of the data that comes from the ear is either far field type measurements, like auditory brainstem responses, which or compound action potentials, which is you play a sound in the ear and it's like making measuring a an EEG. You can get a summed output of all the nerve fibers. Mm -hmm. Right? So you don't get a whole lot of mechanistic information that way. Mm -hmm. Or it's single unit activity. Or if you actually open the cochlea, then you can measure vibration at single points. But you can't measure any hair cell activity or functional cellular mechanism. So all of the cellular stuff has been done in in vitro. So either it's isolated cells or it's isolated epitheliums, things like that. And usually if you do an isolated epitheliums, you're working on very young tissue, even pre-hearing tissue. So it hasn't actually matured yet. And so there's a huge gap of information that's that's missing i think and you know the field itself has really been dominated by a lot of computational people a lot of engineering people who don't particularly care about the cellular function they can get in and look at the mechanics and they take what data is existing uh, and put it into their computational models and so i think most of this although you know it's these things that always sound simple look good Mm-hmm. that when you actually start pushing at it, you realize it's a lot more complicated than it might appear. So when the mechanical information comes into the inner ear and then it gets transcribed into some electrical signal that is sent to the brain, so what, is that happening in the inner hair cells? So there's two. There's inner and outer hair cells. The outer hair cells are actually the, the amplifier of the system. Mm-hmm. So the big issue, different from most of the other sensory systems, is that the energy associated with sound at threshold is actually lower than the Brownian motion energy associated with the hair bundle organelle. So you just mean the, the, the temperature vibrations, everything sort of shakes a little bit. That's right. So, so it means that it's a really poor signal to noise, mm-hmm. right? And so the way the ear works to resolve this is that it actually uh, is highly tuned. So you have... It, so Noise is, is a, across all frequencies, and that, so if you just take a sliver of signal out of that, you get rid of most of the noise. That's why you have tonotopy. That's why there's a, a frequency map, because you take these slivers in frequency, and that gives you a better signal to noise. So first you do that, and then you amplify it. So then you turn up the gain in the, on the signal, and it's actually a little more complicated because it's a variable gain amplifier. So that what that means is that if you're in a, in a noisy environment, then the amplifier turns itself down. It turns the gain really low. If you're in a quiet environment, then that gain turns way up. Easy examples that, we, that you might know about. If you're in a bar 
talking with people. There's a loud band and things playing. When you walk out of the bar, everything's ev- silent. Everything sounds quiet and muffled, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because the gain is turned down, and it takes time for it to come back up. I always have the TV or radio or something on when I go to bed at night. It's just growing up in the Bronx, I can't take quiet. And so when you're in bed, it's dark, it's quiet. You have it on and you can hear everything fine, right? You get up in the morning, because I rarely remember to hit the sleep button, so it's usually still on in the morning. <laughs> you get up and now it's, you know, the dog is barking, it's noisier outside, and you can't hear the TV anymore, right? Again, same thing. It's mm-hmm. modulated based on on the ambient noise. So outer hair cells are responsible for that gain. And inner hair cells are actually the true sensory cells. They're the ones that convert the vibration to a signal that goes to the cochlear nucleus in the brain after that. So sort of on the same example, so like when you're in a crowded room and there's all these voices talking and then you can actually choose sometimes if you want. You can sort of signal on to just one thing. Like, you can just focus your attention onto one voice or to one. Like, if you want to just, like, listen to the sound of, like, the air conditioner or something like that. So is that the same process where you're turning up and down the gain? So that's a really good question. So that's, <laughs> like, the, the cocktail party effect. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the short answer is we don't really know whether this is, is it central processing or is there a peripheral component? I'm probably a major outlier in this because I actually think there's a, a peripheral component. And it's actually one of the reasons I'm trying to get at more in vivo type measurements to look at this. So as I mentioned, the outer hair cells are the gain of the system. So the efferns, so the, the nerve fibers that come from the brain to the periphery, almost all of them go to outer hair cells. So they can control the gain of the cochlea we have no real idea what they do or how they work or wh- how, what is stimulated mm-hmm. by them. And so to me, I think it's kind of a cool idea that uh, part of the you know, focused attention type response could actually be selecting out what you want to hear based on if I'm talking to you, that's, that centrally it will stimulate the efferents that pop that, those phonons out that are coming from you and turn everything else off. That so, sounds pretty sophisticated. So it would be cool, though. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so, it's really cool. So what do people know about these, these fibers that go back to the, to the ear? Like, They don't know very much. I mean, they know some in terms of where the... They barely know the anatomy. Mm-hmm. Even the anatomy is mm-hmm. still somewhat questionable about where everything is coming from. And what the, we know, there is a cortical uh, feedback onto the cells that go. There is thalamic feedback onto these cells. They don't know exactly what it what stimulates them. Is it sound or or not? Four percent. Yeah. They know. So it's one of those. Again, it's it's kind of classic for the ear. They've worked out pretty well the molecular mechanisms of how the efferent system works, how this cholinergic pathway works. They know that it's an alpha nine, alpha ten type of subunit receptors. They know that there's calcium comes in and it it activates a potassium channel and you get calcium-induced calcium release, and it does all of these molecular things. But why it does it, or what the physiological relevance of this is, they have no idea. So, like, are there different fibers that selectively do this to one one frequency and not another so, unknown? So, innervation-wise, it's actually very broad. Oh. So, so the efferents are very different from the afferents, where the afferents go one synapse so efferents, afferents, you mean inputs versus outputs? Exactly. So the, the output to the brain is one synapse, one fiber. 
the signal to the cochlea from the brain is very branched out. So one fiber to many cells? One fiber goes to many cells, but it's typically kind of about an octave, I think, Hmm. is the range that it goes in the cochlea. Oh, okay. So maybe you could have adaptation at the level of octaves, but not more specific than that. So, well, it's it's hard to say. So again, the problem is, so in the eye, you know what a receptive field is, right? You can say, if you stimulate with this light in this area, this is the number of cells that get activated, right? You have no idea how many cells get activated in the cochlea. No one's, ever, no one's measured it. And it's, it's really hard to measure because you, it's, not, it's deep within the skull, but it's through two separate layers of bone. So you have to get through two layers of bone and their mechanoreceptors, right? So it's not like you can just drill through the bone because <laughs> if you drill through the bone, they'll be deaf by the time you get there, right? So you have to figure out how to get through there. And now, you know, you have to go, even in a mouse, you know, you have to get, you have to go at least a centimeter or so from the outside bone to where the cochlea is. And so how do you deal with those optics to get in there, right? You can't really stick an electrode in because if you stick an electrode, right, you're you're talking about a a membrane that's meant to vibrate, right? Mm -hmm. So if you stick an electrode in there, at the very least, you're going to probably screw up the vibration, right? So you're not mm-hmm. going to get a real answer. Uh, and if it keeps vibrating, you're likely just going to kill the cell that you're impaled on because your electrode's not vibrating with it. So it's just a really technically difficult problem to solve. How did you go about uh, tackling that problem? Or was, that, was the solution or the way to tackle that problem already established before you started a lab? So we are trying to solve that problem right now. So this is kind of the new direction for the lab, which is to do in vivo optical measurements in the functioning cochlea. And I think that uh, now is the right time to do it because technology has gotten to the point where we can, you can use you know, these uh, small lenses that you can relay into the tissue so you can get past the fact that you have to go deep we were actually in the midst of developing ways of dissolving bone rather than drilling bone. So we mm. can kind of dissolve away and, and kind of mm. scrape it off and, and not do uh, the mechanical damage. So that part we've actually got worked out. And now uh, there are a lot more optical tools that are tractable. There are high, higher speed voltage sensitive dyes. They're brighter per, per stimulus. Uh, the same is true with calcium dyes. We could do... Uh, transgenic animals that have these fluorophores in them right at the start, things like that. So, you know, that didn't exist 10 years ago. So now seems like the right time. So that's why we're pushing. And we're, I think we're, we're close, but it's not, it's not there yet. I'm, by the end of the... I think my goal is to have our paper submitted by the end of the year on with using voltage sensors and imaging. So this is the receptive field. This is how many hair cells are... are activated at threshold that's the question yeah. that i want to answer kind of a very, super year. super basic but that's incredibly right. important yeah. yeah so are you still currently like actively involved in carrying out the procedures and the experiments yourself or are you more um, the overseer of the lab so i think if you poll the lab you get different answers from different people <laughs> um in general i uh am in the lab 
I think my strengths are doing experiments and working with technology and designing and implementing experiments. That's what I like to do, and that's so that's what I do. It's been harder of late. In general, I try to spend three days a week in the lab at some level. Uh, I'd say the last six or eight months, that hasn't happened really. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's a blip on the screen. So the things I do in the lab, if a new person's coming in the lab, I work with them, uh, get them up to speed. Uh, eventually, they kick me out and <laughs> to do their own thing. If there's new technology, I like to work on developing the, the new technology, get it, fine-tuning it, troubleshooting it, getting it all working, that kind of thing, and then handing it off uh, to whoever is the person yeah. interested. So for me, I learn by doing, and it's much, I, I don't know, it's kind of the multi-sensory thing about collecting data, watching it come in, seeing exactly what's happening. That is so much more informative than looking at a polished figure that someone shows you. Um, I like to see all of the data. I like to see the stuff that people are throwing away and saying this doesn't matter. Can you think of a story. specific example where that kind of instinct served you well? I mean, so the, this paper we had on, uh, on adaptation recently, that, and the paper suggests that, that calcium is not driving adaptation. What adaptation is is during a constant stimulation the response that you measure will decrease over time. And if you were then to increase the intensity of the stimulus, you would actually recover the, the response. And so what's happening is it's, the output is just becoming less sensitive. It's right? a mechanism to do the kind of gain control that we were talking about that, earlier. Yes, exactly. And so the idea has been since the late 70s that calcium comes through this, uh, an ion channel and it either interacts with this channel to make it less sensitive, or it alters some myosin motors that reduce the force. So it moves this channel actually so it, and reduces the force that the channel is sensing, and so the channel closes. So all of this was done in frog and in turtle, and I did a, a whole bunch of the turtle data, so I'm familiar with it. In fact, um, responsible for this and, idea. And respons <laughs> responsible well, for your own... I was, uh... late, I was late into the story, so a lot of it was very well established by... People even older than I am. So we, we were actually trying to do an experiment to see how fast this ion channel could open. And we, we developed a, a variety of different technology so that we could stimulate these bundles really fast, like orders of magnitude faster than had been done before. We could actually get electrical recordings from the cell that were about an order of magnitude faster than what people had done before. So developing that took some time. It took probably six, six or eight months at least in doing that. And so while we were in the process, I was like, well, if we want to see how fast it opens, we have to slow adaptation down because adaptation is going to get in the way. I was like, so why don't we, while we're doing this, why don't we figure out what the environment should be? So we should do low calcium or change the calcium buffering. And there's just like some very standard experiments. And I was like, well, so why don't you, why don't you do this? And so Anton was the postdoc in the lab, was doing these experiments. And he'd come back and he'd be like, this is low calcium. Look, it doesn't slow down. And, of course, I'd be like, well, do I have to make your solutions for you? I'm like, you don't know how to make a low calcium solution. I'm a little concerned. And we went round and round and round on this. And part of what helped was so I would go and I'd 
sit with them and we watch an experiment or I do an experiment, mostly watch the experiments for this particular set and, you know, measured the calcium in the solutions and whatnot and realized, well, this is, you know, we went and then we basically was like, okay, well, we went through the series of experiments and said, okay, well, how else can we not let calcium go in, right? So change the membrane potential, things like that. And it all turned out that calcium doesn't do this in the mammalian cochlea. And in doing it, what, what I learned, and by seeing it while it was happening, was it was obvious that this is not a turtle, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't what happened in the turtle. I so it's a different turtle. mechanism in different species. And so it's a different mechanism in the turtle. And it's not particularly, actually, it's probably more information than you need. But, I mean, it's actually not that surprising that it would be different because the mechanisms that had been proposed are likely to slow down the response time of the cell. And the big difference between frog and turtle and mammal is the frequency range, right? So the highest frequency a turtle is going to hear is probably eight or 900 hertz, not 20,000 hertz. So, so along those same lines, though, on the, different, the differences between the species, so you're using mice and rats now, and you've observed this difference between the mammalian ear, the way the mammalian system works, and the way that the turtle system works. But even when in the mammalian system, there are differences between other mammals and humans. Mice, for example, hear on the ultrasonic frequencies. That's actually the primary way they communicate with each other. Humans don't hear those frequencies. So are you concerned that there is still going to be a leap? There's going to be some difference between what we're able to study in mice and what the human is? So I hate mice. (laughs) I I want to go on the record (laughs) saying I hate mice. Um, So I I think that it's less of an issue. Uh, It probably still is somewhat of an issue, but it's less of an issue because a turtle and a frog, they don't actually have a cochlea. They have what's called a papilla. They have an epithelial layer. They only have one cell type. The bundle structures are completely different. They don't have inners and outers. Their tuning mechanism is, is intrinsic and it's electrically based within the cell. It's not mechanically based in the environment. So mm. it's a very different structure. Mm-hmm. Bird, bird is actually interesting because it's this hybrid. So it actually has two different types of cells but it's also an epithelial system. It has efferents and afferents going to different cell types and things like that. Uh, So it would be cool to figure out exactly how that works. Um, There are differences in... and uh, There are frogs that can hear in the ultrasonic, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that if you measure from any of those cells, they only go to a couple hundred hertz. But they actually have a... Well, it's not 100% sure how it happens. The, the thought is it basically has a step down in frequency from the that the middle ear actually can take high frequencies and transfer them down to lower frequencies so that you can hear them. So is that oh. observed in the behavioral sense? It's observed in the behavioral sense, okay. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's a, a friend of mine who I've been trying to get to uh, invite me along with him because his experiments happen in, like, French Guiana, or the rainforests of China, things like that, where he finds these frogs and he measures their behavior uh, in their natural environment. And a lot of these frogs will basically be able to track their food based on wing beat, so bugs that are going at really high frequencies. They can Mm -hmm. find them and eat them. And they can also track bats and birds, which are coming to get eat them Mm -hmm. at high frequencies and get out of the way of them. 
So it's a very important tool for them to have. When you're studying this, how do you tell the difference between the organ, I guess, directly sensing the ultrasonic frequencies and sort of sensing them in a way, but then taking them down to a lower frequency that can be processed? So you have to kind of do the experiment at multiple levels, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I think if you're measuring, you can measure at the hair cell level what the frequency of the input is Mm -hmm. and realize that it's it's different. So there's a transfer function that's lowering what that frequency would be, uh, that, which is the, exactly the experiment I'm trying to get him to take me to French Guiana, to, in case you're listening. <laughs> so from 1999 to 2006, your lab was uh, actually not here at Stanford, but was at LSU in, in New Orleans. And you left LSU in large part due to Hurricane Katrina. Could you describe what happened to you in your lab in the wake of Hurricane Katrina? <laughs> In, in less than an hour. <laughs> See, this is why I, this is why, this is why I like whiskey. <laughs> so, the lab itself was on the ninth floor of the building, so it didn't it did not get flooded. It did end up getting a lot of damage due to high humidity and high temperatures, and and the fact that you know administration wouldn't actually let us go in and unplug anything while they tried to get the power grid back up and so there was a whole lot of power surges that basically fried any high impedance equipment you said that administration didn't let you back in i, I think you told me at one point a more, a more dramatic version of that story <laughs> <laughs> he's being modest for the uh, for the audience so uh sure why not um so we evacuated after the hurricane to uh Bastrop, Louisiana, which was a very cool place where a kid from the Bronx was very different environment. Uh, but it was nice because it, it, we, it gave us the opportunity to go back to New Orleans to see how things were going. Honestly, when we left, we figured we'd be away for the weekend. If power went out, uh, we'd wait for the power to go back and we'd go in. So we didn't really have big thoughts that you know there was going to be all this flooding. When all of this happened, uh, there was basically no plan for how to deal with anything that was going on. Um, I was able to track all the people from my lab uh, and make sure everyone had a place to be and and was okay and, and, and doing what they needed. The place that we were at in Bastrop became kind of a haven. So anyone who couldn't find a place came to this place. And it just so happened there were like three different women that were like eight and a half months pregnant oh, <laughs> right, at the, right at this moment. So, oh, man. And it was actually one of those moments where I'm driving a woman who I had met like two days before to the hospital. It was like midnight. I was in Bastrop, Louisiana, driving to the hospital because she was in labor. And I was just like, okay, you know, I'd have lost my house anyway. If someone would have bet me a week ago that, you know, this is where I would be in my life. Now. <laughs> but that was all actually was fine. Uh, but, the, you know, there was a mandatory you couldn't go into the city for several weeks. And that was actually the thing that just was, I'm not good at doing nothing. And so this was just killing me, uh, as it was the, a buddy of mine. And so we came up with a plan to get into the city. <laughs> James Bond. <laughs> which was uh, to pretend that we worked for the power company, which was, oh which was called Entergy. And, uh, and we had these magnetic stickers, and we stuck them on the car. How did you get a magnetic sticker? So my buddy's father-in-law actually worked for the company. And so we had like all this random paraphernalia (laughs) around his house. (laughs) So we grabbed them and we stuck them on the car and we made some fake IDs. We got on the highway and we just drove to the city. 
So did you roll up to like a National Guard checkpoint? Well, that's right. So we got to the first – so there were a series of checkpoints. We get up there and the whole way down, I'm like like working this story, right, because I'm not used to kind of BSing this (laughs) kind of thing. So I had this story down, right? And we get up there and there's like three guys with – Machine gun. Machine guns. Yeah. Yes. Step in front of the car. One guy with the machine gun comes walking over. They're all – they look like they're about 12. So I'm rolling rolling down the window, right, and just like about to launch into my spiel. Hmm. And the guy walks up and he's like, energy, huh? You guys got a lot of work to do. Toss, <laughs> you didn't even ask you toss, for credentials no, or anything. Toss the pass oh into the, onto the windshield. I was like – about to pass out because I hadn't breathed for like a minute and a half. <laughs> I look over and my buddy's like, just drive. Just start driving. So I was like, mm, So is this drive. what they teach start you driving. during uh, your graduate career? Right? How to, <laughs> how to, how to, yeah. And then once we got the first pass, every other one after that, they saw the first and they just loaded them up. And then we basically kept these passes and we had free access the whole time. Wow. But what you were getting at was in in planning this, when we got in, I called the one of the deans, the multiple deans of the of the school and said, you know, we're going to be in the city. We'd really like to go in the building and just make sure that all of the equipment that we have is kind of unplugged and whatnot because we don't know when power is going on, but we know it's going to be a problem because it's, you know, 100% humidity and 100 degrees out and there's no air conditioning in the building. And he's like, oh, that's great. That's fine. I'll meet you. I'm going down with the National Guard and I'll meet you down there. So it was like, okay, call me. He said, call me when you get there. So it was like, okay. So we got in, and uh, it was amazing. We got we got to my house. We, so we did houses first. We went to my house. Uh, and there was only about a foot and a half of water left This because it was about two weeks after. And it was, you know, I mean, obviously it was completely yes. destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, I took a bunch of pictures, and I grabbed my son's was like half a story up. It was a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. It's all black and white and mold. And then you open his room and it's like sunny <laughs> and everything looks good. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was at the point where, you know, his clothes only lasted about a month or so. He was growing mm-hmm. so fast. But I grabbed his favorite stuff, took that with us. We went to my buddy's house, which was under about 10 feet of water still. This is a classic New Orleans, right? So it's illegal for anyone to go into the city. We get by the levee. The water's too high, so we couldn't drive. So we parked at the levee. His house was actually not far from where one of the levees had bro- broken. So we're walking along the levee finding, to try to identify a way in because there's a lot of water. We get down to where one of the roads comes across, and there's a, there's a sheriff. And the sheriff has a set of, like, five boats out. And basically he was taking anyone who happened to show up he was taking to their house, huh. or if you were okay, he was letting you take a boat and go to your house and see what was going on, despite the fact that it was completely <laughs> against the rules for anyone to be coming into the city. And so he gave us a boat. We, took, we basically rode, took the boat into the second floor of my buddy's house, did the same thing, grabbed some stuff for the kids. We actually took about 50 pictures uh, to bring back without realizing that there was actually this was there was no film in the camera. <laughs> it would have been awesome. Oh. Though. Uh, and so we finished that. We get back in the car, start driving. I call this my favorite dean. I, and I can't make it today. I couldn't make it today, so I canceled. I was like, well, we're here, so l- we're just going to go in. Oh, you, well, you're not allowed to go. You're not allowed in the building. There's a guard to the building. I was like, well. 
why don't you just call the guard and tell him it's okay, that we're going to go in. No, no one's allowed in the building. And I was like, well, we're, we're actually part of the university, right? We're faculty for the university. I'm like, we just want to go in and try to save whatever equipment is. We're not taking – there's six feet of water, and we're in a dinghy. I'm like – it's yeah. not like we're taking, taking equipment yeah, yeah. from the ninth floor of this building in 100 degrees <laughs> down the dark staircase. I'm like, the odds of us really getting away with anything valuable is low. No. Is anyone that shows up will either be shot or arrested. Wow. Can't go in. Wow. <laughs> that is extreme. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, when would be a good time? Well, I don't know. Why don't you just call me tomorrow? I'm like, well, I, you know, I have to take my family to Ohio where that's where she's from, my wife's from. And, you know, I have to figure out what the rest of my lab is going to do. And I can't really just sit around and wait for it to be convenient for you to do this. So we're just going to go. And he said, well, you will not be allowed and you'll be prosecuted and just wow. on and on. It was amazing. So, yeah. So is this like a, a science metaphor that the National Guard, no problem, you know, flooded That's city, right. no problem. Yeah. But Dean, yeah. Dean that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's not – yeah. I, le- I learned mm-hmm. that the, the station in life that you have is not an indication of the character of the person when it comes under stress. The so. irony being that you are now the head of the neurodepartment. <laughs> <laughs> I, char- I never said I had character. <laughs> so then how did you end up at Stanford? So your student, Connie, told me a story that you, when you interviewed here, you said you told the head of the department that you would be a terrible fit and they shouldn't hire you. Yes. You know, coming to Stanford was never a goal. Uh-huh. Um, so I had been collaborating with a guy at NIH. Uh, we had equipment there, so we set up a lab there. Bashara was actually really generous because he actually, out of his budget, paid for two apartments for the people in my lab to live in wow. and actually gave them a stipend. It ended up being taken up by the institute, but only because he basically made them look bad by doing it himself. And you can imagine, so this is now people who are paying a mortgage paying a rent for their family somewhere else, wanting to come back and work. So it would be like three rents on one salary. So it was just not feasible. Mm-hmm. And so this was a big a big plus. And so we were able to set up there. And honestly, it was kind of a just a little bit of normal in a life that was really messy. So it was kind of a it – was, it was very helpful. And we did. We got, we got like three papers out. in the time we were there. So it was a little manic as well. Uh, So I I got fired from LSU because uh, in the Neuroscience Center, the guy there said, uh, well, I sat down with him. But the plan was we were going to go back and and build stuff up again. Uh, When I met with him, he was like, well, the center is different and we have to have, you know, certain topics of research that are going to be covered, and which in hearing was not one of these. And I was like, well... I'm not doing any of those things. I'm doing what I'm funded for and what I'm interested in. He's like, well, you're going to have to change your funding. And I was like, what are, wow. the, like, what, like, what are the odds? What are the odds that I'm going to go from studying hair cells to studying Alzheimer's disease and actually get funded to do it? I'm like, it's zero. The answer is zero. But that's what he said. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. And he said, Tony, you know, you've never really been happy here. <laughs> like, oh, okay. uh, so at that point, I knew I couldn't stay. Uh, I s- just sent emails out to people I knew at different universities that had hearing groups and said, you know, let me know if you know of jobs that are open. And uh, Stefan uh, Heller had just moved out to Stanford and was starting a group. And he's like, oh, well, you sh- why don't you come out here? I didn't actually know Stefan 
very well because we kind of went to the same meetings but very different symposia because I'm a bi- more biophysics and he's more cell biology. Mm-hmm. So I came out and, you know, they're building a regeneration stem cell group, right? I don't, I don't do it and I'm not a particular fan of it. So there's kind of two strikes there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was also, you know, a little bit stressed at this point in my life. And I sit down with the, the chairman and he's just like, so, you know, how do you see yourself transitioning and doing stem cell work? And I was like, I don't. I'm like, no. That's an easy one. Like, I, I know what I, I was like, I know exactly the work I want to do. I'm like, I'm willing to help people if they're doing it and they need assays and things like that. I'm willing to help people. I was mm-hmm. like, but I'm not going to drive a stem cell project or regeneration or something like that. And and they had actually interviewed somebody else who was kind of more of a hybrid guy. And I was like, well, you should just hire him. He, he, that's what he does. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that's not what I do. I was like, you know, you're not going to tell me what research to do, and I'm not going to tell you how to operate because he's a clinician. And I was just like, that seems fair to me. So it was not a particularly good interview. Um, and I was, so I just left, and, and I told Stefan, I was like, you know, this it doesn't look right. This does not look like a good fit. You should just hire this other guy. It's a better fit for you. I was like, and, you know, don't worry about me. I'm, I'm fine. And so I just left thinking we're done. And he was like, oh, you know, you don't worry about the, you know, the chairman. You know, he's not used to talking with basic science people, but, you know, he's, you know, it's fine. You can do whatever you want and this and that. I was like, well, whatever. Um, and then Rob called me. He's like, oh, well, you should come back and bring the family. And I was like, why? Why would I do that? I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And he's like, let's have another conversation. This isn't what it's about. So I came out again, and it was like a completely different world. We talked about it, and uh, he's like, you know, I would never think to tell you what you should do. I'm just looking for integration and how to bring people together and, you know, create a core group of people and stuff. And I was like, okay. And so it came down, in the end, it came down to a couple, honestly, it came down to two places, and I left it up to my wife. I said, you know, you pick. Well, I had six offers, a couple of them were closer to where she grew up. So I was mm-hmm. like, well, if it matters to you to live closer to home, then just pick one of those. So she picked she picked Stanford. So we're here. <laughs> and, uh, it's been good. and I have to say, I mean, the department has been, I've been in four different clinical departments, and by far this is the most research-supportive department I've ever mm-hmm. been in. The perception that I had initially was very different than what the reality turned out to be. So that's, which is really good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think it's about time that we uh, that we play our favorite game here on the show, which is called uh, "Not My Field." And so, in this oh, game, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going we're going to we're going to give you the titles of three papers. Two of these papers are not actually papers, and one of them is a paper. And it's your job to tell us which of these papers is the real paper, <laughs> and which. <of> them <laughs> is what, what's I mean, the, in general, what's the success rate of this? I think I think tilde tilde fifty percent on a question by question basis. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The bar is high because you are the head, right? Yeah. So. On the other hand, we've only asked <laughs> right. lowly graduate students That's so true. far. Exactly. You oh have God. developed a fine graduate. palette for. Hopefully, graduate. we're expecting eighty yeah. percent. I'm pretty sure graduate students do a hell of a lot more reading. Than <laughs> okay. So number one, mass spectroscopy spectroscopy reveals the dynamics of the molecular composition of steak from rare to well done. Preferences of fruit flies of varying species of fruit as a function of decomposition. And the last one, 
Residents' time and food contact time effects on transfer of salmonella. I'm going to mess this name up, but tifimurium. Salmonella. <laughs> salmonella, okay. From tile, wood, and carpet, testing the five-second rule. Gonna go. I'll go with the second one. Incorrect. The third one, actually. The third was one, the, a the one real you study. Read. Yeah, the one I could not read. Okay, that, that's, that's, my, that's my clue for the next one. <laughs> so is the five-second rule valid or not? This is the abstract of the paper. A common phrase related to the cleanliness of food dropped on surfaces is the five-second rule, the implication being that if dropped food is picked up quickly enough, it is not contaminated. And here's the key point. Three experiments were conducted to determine the survival and transfer of salmonella from wood, tile, or carpet to sausage and bread. The researchers conclude, one, salmonella can survive for up to four weeks on dry surfaces in high enough populations to be transferred to food, and two, uh, salmonella can be transferred to the foods tested almost immediately on contact. So the five-second rule is not valid. Is not valid. Right. Unfortunately. So it's an immediate transfer. Yeah. I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, late, it's late enough in the day where that's not important. A little important. bit of dirt is not going to yeah. do. Okay, question two. Courtship behavior behavior of ostrich, ostriches. I mean, wow. We are, all, we are all struggling today. <laughs> I'm going to vote for that one. So no. uh, option B. Dogs prefer the foot order of human males over human females. Or option C. Whales are attracted to boat engines that transmit particular resonant frequencies. I'm going to say the first one. Okay. I will read you from the abject of the correct one. The courtship behavior of adult male and female ostriches was observed in the presence and absence of human beings. (laughs) Courtship behaviors in both males and females were more prevalent in the presence of humans. Exposure to a human for a short period did not stimulate courtship behavior in the period immediately after the human had withdrawn. Courtship behavior towards humans may be important in the reproductive success of ostriches in the farming environment. So ostriches like an audience, basically, is what that paper is <laughs> saying. I believe it. So, so far, <laughs> there's no way dogs were going to like the smell of... Exactly. A stinky bo- man feet over... Your intuition was correct. If we Just mess up, up on, yeah, exactly. yeah, on the pronunciation, we should pick that That's our tell. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> All right, your final uh, set of questions. So is it A, consequences of erudite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity, problems with using long words needlessly... <laughs> Or B, scientific prose suffers from a form of verbal obesity which is more loquacious and less concise and longer and more redundant to its detriment and the detriment of its readers. Wow. (laughs) Or C, deep neural networks can predict journal article citations based upon historically varying bigram frequencies, irrespective of journal impact factor. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope it's not number three. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Uh, let's say number one. Indeed, you are correct. Wow, that's impressive. Wow. So, two for three, so better was, better than graduate com- students. That was a completely a guess. You have <laughs> passed our bar. I yeah, you passed our could expectations. Could not be the, first, the third one. So from from the abstract, most texts on writing style encourage authors to avoid overly complex words. However, a majority of undergraduates admit to deliberately increasing the complexity of their vocabulary so as to give the impression of intelligence. This paper explores the extent to which this strategy is effective. Experiments one through three manipulate the complexity of text and find a negative relationship between complexity and judged intelligence. And, I believe it. I mean, that, yeah, that's definitely a, a real phenomenon I've seen before. Mm-hmm. I always am more impressed with someone who can explain a complex question 
in very simple terms. Yeah, in a yeah. Con- concise right. and simple Absolutely. manner. I mean, That's the, the best talks be. are the ones that you actually think you would... When the guy or the woman is given the talk, that you're like guessing at what the next thing should, they should be doing is. Right, mm. right. not right. guessing at what the language yeah. means. <laughs> right. yeah. And then you're like... Because exactly. you're like... You're feeling all smart, like, wow, I know exactly what's going on <laughs> yeah, here, right? absolutely. And designing and giving that presentation takes a lot of skill, hmm. I think, as opposed to getting up there and giving a talk that confuses everyone. That's easy. Right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, easy. That's, that's really easy. <laughs> I, mean, I think we're all experts at that, actually. <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Tony. Oh, this was great. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guests will be Mary Kavanaugh, a postdoc in the Goronzi lab here at Stanford who studies immunology. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Forrest Coleman, Jordan Sorokin, and myself. For more information on Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website, www.neuritewest.org. That's www.neuwritewest.org.